Chapter 14 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. The Flight Across the Jerseys. When Howe at last perceived that he would be unable to gain the rear of Washington's straggling army, he decided to attack it. And on October 28, 1776, after a hard struggle, the invaders succeeded in gaining a part of Chatterton Hill, on which a strong body of the Americans had been posted, although the Redcoats lost nearly 300 men in the fight. Once more Howe hesitated about following up his advantage in this engagement, which in our histories has been called the Battle of White Plains, but sent back to New York for Percy and reinforcements. On the evening of the 30th, Percy and the additional redcoats came, and the plan was formed to move upon the position held by the Patriots the following morning. But in the night a fierce storm arose, and Washington, quick to seize the opportunity, and well aware that he had now more to gain by drawing his enemy on than he had by meeting him in open battle, in the darkness withdrew to North Castle where Howe perceived that it would be a very hazardous matter to attack him. Accordingly, the British commander decided to change his plan, and marched for the bank of the Hudson. For a brief time Washington did not know whether Howe was planning to attack the two forts there, or to start across New Jersey for Philadelphia. There was little to be gained in seizing that town, except the moral effect of capturing the capital, but the capital of such a nation as the United States then was, was a shifting matter and to move from one town to another required no very great effort. However, Washington was soon to learn, and to his sorrow, that Howe had designs both on the two forts, Washington and Lee, and on the capital as well. After a council of war was held, it was agreed by all that the best thing for the army to do was to cross over into New Jersey, at least for the greater part to do this, while General Heath was left with a force in the highlands, to prevent any advance from Canada, and General Lee was to be left at North Castle with 6,000 or more men, who were to be ready to come to Washington's aid at any time when he might require their assistance. Lee was now the successor of General Ward, and somehow almost all the men in the colonies believed in him, though today we know that he was even a greater traitor than Benedict Arnold proved to be. He had fought in Europe, and to the people of the colonies that fact very naturally meant much. He was a man of marked eloquence, and his persuasive tongue was seldom at rest, and besides, he had just come from the South, after having won a very decided victory there, or at least he was given the credit of having won it, though in reality he had very little to do with it. By the middle of November Howe was well informed of the true state of affairs in Fort Washington, his own scouts having learned much, and a deserter from Colonel McGraw's men having given him more. In spite of Washington's plan to abandon the fort, Congress, believing in its own wisdom, had sent a message to hold the place, and somehow Green seems to have had that same opinion. At all events, it was decided in Washington's absence, for he had gone up the Hudson to supervise some work there, to make the attempt. And when, on November 16, 1776, Howe, after having completely invested the place by land and water, sent a messenger demanding the immediate surrender of the garrison. 
although his own men were outnumbered by the attacking force nearly five to one, sturdy Colonel McGraw sent back a reply that, quote, if Howe wanted the place, his best plan would be to come and take it, unquote. General Howe had probably a sincere desire to avoid bloodshed, and knew he would be easily able to capture the stronghold, but he had foolishly made a threat that if his demand was not complied with, no quarter would be given. And this threat, added to the decision which already had been made to hold the place, only seemed to increase the anger and the zeal of the little garrison, hardly numbering more than three thousand men. The fight that followed was a terrible one. The Americans fought with the courage of despair, but bayonets and numbers were too great for them to withstand, and at last, when more than five hundred of the British forces had been killed or wounded, and the Americans, though they had lost but one hundred and fifty, were simply overpowered, the word to surrender was given. Even then, the infuriated Hessians fell upon the defenseless garrison, and bayoneted many of the helpless soldiers, a sight that caused Washington, who now had returned and was watching the battle from Fort Lee, to weep and sob like a heartbroken child. Nearly three thousand American prisoners, by the surrender of Fort Washington, were added to the numbers the British now held in New York, and great quantities of ammunition and stores, next in value to soldiers themselves, also fell into the hands of the victors. Washington now knew that the enemy without doubt would cross into New Jersey, and so he instantly sent word to Lee at North Castle to join him with his six thousand or more men, but Lee did not come. Fort Lee, in the confusion and fear, was guarded only on three sides, the northern side having been left unprotected, as no one of the Americans believed an attack need be feared from that direction. Howe must have known of this neglect, for in the night time he sent Lord Cornwallis with a force of five thousand men up the river to a landing place above the fort, and suddenly and unexpectedly, on the morning of November 19th, this division appeared on the northern side of Fort Lee. Washington was not there in person, though he was but a few miles away, but the sight of the redcoats threw the startled Americans into a panic. Without stopping even to eat their breakfast, leaving even their cooking utensils on the fires, abandoning tents, baggage, much of their ammunition and arms, the army, if such it might still be called, fled like a frightened mob. Something like order was at last obtained, and the heavy-hearted Washington began what has become known as the retreat across the Jerseys. And surely he had a right to have a heavy heart. More of his men were prisoners in New York than he had with him on his march. Defeat had followed defeat, loss had followed loss, and it almost seemed as if the proud boast of the British that the rebellion was at an end was only too true. And it is even said that the great leader himself talked over plans by which, in event of the complete rout of his followers, he and a few of his friends might find a hiding place in the vast wilderness beyond the Alleghanies. To make matters worse, the victorious British were in close pursuit, so close that it is said that when the rear guard of the Americans marched out from Newark, they could hear the fifes and drums of the approaching redcoats. The people of the region were demoralized, some who had been friendly to the colonies coming out now boldly on the side of King George, and others with their families and a small part of their possessions having fled, terrified by rumors of what the redcoats and Dutch butchers would do. One poor young mother, forsaken by her family, lifted a board in the kitchen floor of her home and hid her baby beneath it, while she sought safety in the loft of the barn. Probably she thought, in her terror, that Lord Cornwallis and all his redcoats wanted that baby of hers. 
but her fear was only a sample of that which existed on every side. The British leaders now took it upon themselves to offer a pardon to all who, within sixty days, should, quote, appear before the governor or any other officer in his majesty's service, unquote, and claim the benefit of the proclamation that had been sent throughout New Jersey. Many of the more timid ones submitted, but the spirit of all was not crushed. In reply to Howe's proclamation, a counter-response was scattered by some of the more hardy friends of independence, the spirit of which may be seen by the following quotations. Messrs. Howe, we have seen your proclamation, and as it is a great curiosity, think it deserves some notice. Unless no one else should deign to notice it, we'll make a few remarks upon what was designed for the public benefit. In this rarity, we see slaves offering liberty to free Americans. Thieves and robbers offer to secure our rights and property. Murderers offer us pardon. A perjured tyrant by the mouths of his hireling butchers commands all the civil and military powers in these independent states to resign all pretensions to authority and to acknowledge subjection to a foreign despot, even his mock majesty, now reeking with blood and murder. This is truly a curiosity and is a compound of the most consummate arrogance and folly of the cloven-footed spawn of despairing wretches who are laboring to complete the works of tyranny and death. It would be far less wicked, and not quite so stupid, for the Grand Turk to send two of his slaves into Britain, to command all Britons to acknowledge themselves slaves of the Turk, offering to secure their rights and property, and to pardon such as had borne arms against his sublime highness, upon condition of their making peace within sixty days. Messrs. Howe and W. Howe, pray read your proclamation once more, and consider how modest you appear and reflect on the infinite contempt with which you are viewed by the Americans, and remember the meanest free man scorns the highest slave." Unquote. The bombastic counter-proclamation goes on to refer to all that America was doing and was going to do, but it is evident, after all, that it was written by someone who was whistling to keep up his own courage, and that of some of his faint-hearted friends. On the other hand, Tory writers came forth and printed their words which were scattered broadcast. The following is one of the forms in which they seemed to find particular delight. The effusion was signed Britannicus, and first appeared in one of the New Jersey Tory papers in December, 1776. A Fable quote, There was a large forest inhabited by a few sheep. In the neighborhood was a nation of mastiff dogs, another of foxes, another of wolves, and another of boars. The sheep were protected by the dogs till they increased to a great multitude. After a bloody war, in which they were saved by the dogs from both the foxes and the wolves, the sheep imagined themselves to be a very mighty people, and some old stinking rams told them it was not proper that the dogs should any longer rule over them. The dogs had bit them, they said, and intended to bite them more severely, and so the sheep proclaimed themselves a commonwealth of free people. Yet while they complained how the dogs had oppressed them, they boasted with the same breath that so greatly had they prospered that in twelve years they were become a match for the world, though it was evident that before that time they could not depend on themselves against the foxes only. The dogs, upon this, resolved to bring them back to obedience, but the sheep implored the foxes, the wolves, and the boars to attack the dogs, which they gladly performed. And while the best mastiffs were in the country of the sheep, these different tribes so violently attacked their old formidable enemies, the dogs, 
that they utterly broke their strength and ruined them as a people. But the sheep did not long boast of their profound politics. The foxes, the wolves, and the boars poured in upon them, and soon rendered them the most abject and miserable of all animals. The moral is this. The Americans are, in reality, as defenseless as sheep. It is impossible they can, for several centuries, constitute an empire. They want many requisites. The English are generous, brave mastiffs. The French have always been sly, ravenous foxes. The Spaniards cruel wolves when they conquer. And the Dutchmen wild boars whenever they can effect a settlement. Amboyna and all their settlements witness this. But though for the fable's sake, I suppose the conquest of the mastiffs, I trust that event is yet very distant, and that half a million of determined fighting sheep, with all their ingratitude, a circumstance infinitely more to be feared than the strength of their horns, will never effect so unworthy a purpose. And let me add, there is a circumstance in the natural history of the sheep which greatly resembles American courage. When you go near a flock of sheep, a few will at first run, then the whole body of them will draw up like a line of soldiers, will watch your motions, will seem as if they felt vastly bold, aye, and will stamp their feet on the ground in a menacing manner. But let a mastiff walk up to them, and half a million of these determined threateners will instantly take to their heels and fly off in the greatest fear and confusion. Unquote. In spite of proclamation and counter-proclamation, fable and invective, Washington and his army were hastening across New Jersey. Word of the coming of the British army had already reached Philadelphia, and the fear in that city was great. Every day men dropped from the ranks of the Patriot army and fled. Still the great leader and his few faithful followers kept on. Homesick, forlorn, hungry, fearful, wretched, it was a band, the thought of which ought to make complaints today seldom to be heard. At New Brunswick, Washington burned the bridge across the Raritan, and then, after a brief delay, kept on his way toward the Delaware. Soon not more than 3,000 men remained with the leader, though at last Lee had entered New Jersey and had advanced to Morristown, but he still did not join Washington as he had been ordered to do. Across the Delaware, at last Washington and his ragged, straggling force made their way. All the nearby boats on the river were seized, and a brief breathing space was given the army. Meanwhile, Lee himself had been made a prisoner. Stopping as he did apart from his soldiers, a Tory learned of his custom, and informing the Redcoats of his presence, led the way, and on the morning of December 13th, they surprised the recreant officer before breakfast and bore him away a prisoner, clad only in his nightclothes. The cowardly Lee, afraid for his life, begged piteously for mercy and his captors took great delight in letting him know he could be tried and hanged as a deserter from the ranks of King George's army. Of course they had no such design, but it was rare sport to torment their whining, cowardly prisoner. The loss of Lee at the time was thought to be another great blow to the colonies. General Sullivan, who had previously been exchanged, was placed in command of the American troops at Morristown, and he at once with his men set forth to join Washington. But the capture of Lee proved to be a blessing in disguise to the desperate American and his men on the farther bank of the Delaware. End of chapter 14